This morning we're continuing our study on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, which attempts to lay down for us a summary foundation of biblical truth regarding who God the Holy Spirit is, what He has done, and what He is doing. And we're doing this short topical study in the book of Colossians as a church for two reasons. One, because much of what we looked at in our study in the book of Colossians, of Christ above all, describes to us the very affections and activity of the Spirit in our lives as believers. When we were told in Colossians to reorient our lives towards Christ, to secure our ambition, our affections, and our thoughts on Him, when we were told to turn from playing with sinful lusts and to put on Christ-like virtues, when we were told to show Christ-like humility and submission to our earthly authorities, when we were told to proclaim Jesus Christ above all to a watching world, whether we recognize that or not, the person who desires those things the most and who works in us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, is God the Holy Spirit. So that's the first reason why we're doing this study. It's because it builds upon what we as a church learned in the book of Colossians about how our entire Christian life is to be exalting Jesus Christ above all and how the Spirit helps us in that regard. But the second reason why we're doing this short topical study as a church is because, too, this study builds upon not only what Colossians taught us, but also what Colossians warned us about. Colossians warned us that false teachers will often be very clever in their efforts to distract us from worshiping and proclaiming Jesus Christ above all as the supreme and sufficient one. Colossians 2.18 specifically warned us to watch out for those who, quote, go on in detail about their visions, who are puffed up without reason by their own sensuous minds, and who do not hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. There Colossians was warning us about those who would tell you Christ is good, but He's not enough. You also need to have this mystical, supernatural experience to truly live a life that honors and exalts God, that truly experiences everything that God has to give. And thus, if this lie, this subtle lie is listened to, rather than seeking Christ above all, believers begin to seek after mystical experiences that are outside the fullness, completeness, and sufficiency that is ours in Christ Jesus the moment we trust in Him. And what is the result? An unsaved world that desperately needs to hear a pure and undiluted message about how Jesus Christ is literally everything you need. Instead is hearing from the visible church confusing messages that Christ is good, but you also need to seek after all these experiences. That is not an innocent message. That is detrimental to the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we need to be able to know and show clearly from the pages of Scripture that false promises are exactly that. False promises. And that Christ truly is all you need. And that Christ truly is all that God has to give. That while some seek signs and others seek wisdom, We preach Christ and Him crucified as the very power of God unto those that believe and are being saved. 
That is why we're doing this study. It has direct implications on our glorifying of Christ and our gospel witness as a church. Having said that, there is an important qualifier that I would give. If you know someone who is going to a church that teaches that these sign gifts still exist, let me be very clear. This discussion would not be the first conversation I would have with them. No, you don't want to be discussing sign gifts. You want to be exalting Jesus Christ above all. You want to be convincing, of, convincing them of His sufficiency and of His worth. You want to be making sure that they understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the authority of His word. And if they believe that, I guarantee you everything else will work itself out in time. Why? Because if they have the Holy Spirit, He will give them a longing for Christ and a love for His Word. If they're born again from above, Scripture tells us that they're going to spend their whole lives pursuing the truth and will be miserable until they come to it. So my purpose in these messages is not to convince you to make this the major emphasis of your relationship with others. If that is the impression you are getting from these messages, that is a wrong impression. Far be it. That position, the central position in your relationship to others, belongs to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Do not unhitch this topical series from everything that we've heard before it. My purpose for these messages is to equip you as believers to be able to share the Word of God effectively when a believer's genuine pursuit of the truth causes them to invariably ask the question of you, what about sign gifts? That's my purpose. Not to condemn others, but to equip you so that you can share the truth with those in whom the Holy Spirit is working. And that's the confidence and focus that I want all of you to have. That if they truly know Christ, it's only a matter of God's time. So let's be diligent to know the Word. Let's be diligent to become equipped and ready for that good work when it comes to us. So that's why we're asking the question, what about sign gifts when it comes to the study of the Holy Spirit? It's not to puff ourselves up. It's not to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. No, it is, equ- it is to equip us through God's sufficient Word so that we can be better witnesses for Christ and for His truth in this world. And so, as we've been asking ourselves, what about sign gifts? We've considered first from the pages of Scripture the biblical purpose, people, and past of sign gifts. Sign gifts had a biblical purpose. They were revelatory. They were designed to confirm newly revealed, divinely inspired messages from God that would be authoritative over all men for all time. They had a clear purpose. Sign gifts also had a clear people. They were largely apostolic. They almost always were given solely to those who were commissioned to write down the New Testament, the apostles, or those whom the apostles laid their hands on. They had a clear purpose. They had a clear people. And we also saw that sign gifts had a clear past. They were fulfilled. As the canon of Scripture came to a close and their revelatory purpose was fulfilled, they faded away just as Scripture foretold. Well, that's moved us on to considering the biblical proofs of sign gifts. In other words, when people with whom we've established a Christ-centered relationship with come up to us and ask us, what about sign gifts? The most helpful approach in that moment is to establish a common foundation for that discussion and a a shared authority between the two of you, which will be found not in recounting experiences or opinions, but in studying together the objective, authoritative Word of God. 
And so what we want to do when people ask us what about sign gifts is to take them to the Word of God and to show them from the Scriptures what biblical sign gifts are. And then they can determine whether they are in practice today or not. So last week we looked at the genuine gift of biblical prophecy. And what we saw there is that the gift of prophecy as a rule always bears the characteristics of doctrinal consistency, personal holiness, and total accuracy. Well, this morning we're going to look at the genuine gift of biblical tongues. We're going to consider how does God's Word describe this sign gift, and then we can determine whether this is a spiritual gift that is still in practice today or not. But before we dive in, let's ask the Lord to give us His wisdom to open the eyes of our understanding that we might come to know and adore His ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for these moments. We thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for how your spirit takes your word and he guides us on right paths for your name's sake. Father, we thank you that your word equips us to both minister and encourage those who are downcast as well as to protect and defend those who are weak and being deceived. Father, we just pray that this morning You would guide us in Your truth so that we might understand how You are truly at work in this world, what You have truly promised to those who trust in You, so that we might truly remain focused on what our mission and objective is as a church. Father, give us grace towards that end. Give us wisdom I pray that whatever I say that is incorrect would be quickly forgotten. But whatever I say that is correct would endure in the hearts and minds of your people forever. By your grace, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when it comes to studying the genuine gift of biblical tongues, there are two major sections of Scripture that address this spiritual gift. Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12-14. through 14. Now, since the first rule of biblical interpretation is always to interpret the difficult passages in light of the clearer ones, let's begin by looking at the clearest description we find in the Bible of the gift of tongues in operation, and that is found in the passage we read this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. Here in Acts chapter 2, we find the clearest description in the Bible of what the gift of tongues actually looked like when it was in operation on the day of Pentecost. And this is a very important passage for us to consider because it is from this passage, Acts chapter 2, that the modern Pentecostal movement takes its name. It is called the Pentecostal movement because those who are in it claim to be able to speak in tongues just as the church, early church did on the day of Pentecost. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is the activity that is being demonstrated today actually in line with what happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, does their claim of being able to speak in tongues line up with what we actually see in the pages of Scripture, as Scripture defines the gift? Well, let's find out. In Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, here, Luke, a companion, the companion to Paul, records these words for us. He says in verse 4, And they, that is the 120 believers that were praying in the upper room at that time, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak 
in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So that's the gift of tongues introduced. So now, how is the gift of tongues described in this passage? Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Why? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who were speaking Galileans? Verse 8, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? That is a pretty clear description of how the gift of tongues operated on the day of Pentecost. And verses 6, 8 through 12 of that passage clearly define tongues, glossa in the Greek, as specific foreign human languages spoken in the Roman Empire at that time. So just looking at Acts chapter 2, the Pentecostal gift of tongues, if you will, was the sudden and miraculous ability to speak a foreign human language that the speakers themselves had never previously learned. And this definition, by the way, aligns perfectly with what we've already learned concerning why spiritual gifts of any type are given to believers. If you recall, spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to equip believers to either obey or communicate God's Word more effectively. That is why the gift of tongues came on the day of Pentecost. It was to equip the believers to be able to share and communicate the message of Jesus Christ clearly to all, regardless of language barriers. So that's how Acts chapter 2, at least, describes the gift of tongues. It is the sudden and supernatural ability to speak a foreign human language that the speakers themselves had never previously learned, specifically to share the gospel. That's pretty straightforward. So you say, well, what's the problem then? Well, the problem is we don't see that gift in operation today. Anywhere. That supernatural gift of suddenly and miraculously being able to speak a foreign human language that has never learned before would have really helped when I was trying to learn Spanish. And Koine Greek. And Hebrew. (laughs) That gift is not what's being practiced or even claimed in charismatic churches today. You don't hear people going around speaking in Spanish, French, Mandarin, Swahili, etc. And yet the claim to have the supernatural gift of tongues still persists. How is that possible? Well, that brings us to then the central debate. Because because what's being practiced today doesn't match the gift that's described in Acts chapter 2, many people try to argue that there are in fact two types of tongue gifts in Scripture. There's the Acts chapter 2 foreign human language type of tongues gift. And then they say there's an ecstatic, incoherent, you could say type of heavenly angelic tongues gift that takes place in churches or in private prayer closets, etc. And this belief in a second type of tongues gift, by the way, rises right out of the history of the Pentecostal movement. It's a fascinating study if you'd like to engage in it sometime. Charles Parham 
the founder of modern-day Pentecostalism, at the beginning was absolutely convinced that the Bible taught that the gift of tongues was the gift of foreign human languages. This was the founder of modern-day Pentecostalism. And so when his students first, uh, when he and his students first experienced what they thought was the gift of tongues, they got all excited and they thought that they were speaking in foreign human languages. He runs to the newspapers. You can find like five or six articles that the guy had written saying that the old way of missionaries spending years studying foreign languages is now all over. All they have to do is ask God for power. There was only one major problem. The tongue speech of Parham and his students was not authentic human languages. You can read all of these accounts of Pentecostal missionaries who went off to the mission field with their newly obtained gift of tongues only to find out that none of their hearers could understand a word they were saying. And as these and other missionaries returned in disappointment and failure, Pentecostals were faced in that moment with an interesting dilemma. They could either, one, uphold their exegetical understanding of the gift of tongues and admit that they don't have it, or two, redefine the gift of tongues to match their experiences and radically change their exegesis. Historically, that is exactly what happened. They radically changed their definition of tongues and started to argue that there are in fact two types of tongue gifts in Scripture. There is an Acts 2 foreign human language type of tongue and there is an ecstatic, incoherent, heavenly, angelic language type of tongue. And to justify this viewpoint, they turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 and argue that Paul describes there a different type of tongue gift that is different from the Acts chapter 2 tongue gift. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are they right? Does the Bible support this distinction of two tongue gifts? Is the 1 Corinthians gift of tongues different from the Acts 2 gift of tongues? Well, since we've already looked at Acts chapter 2, let's take a look now at what 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14 says this morning. And what I think will become clear as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 is that this passage is describing the same gift that is described in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at this morning six observations drawn from these two passages that show that the gift of tongues described in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is the same gift of tongues that is described in Acts chapter 2. And so having looked at the clearest description of the gift of tongues and having summarized the central debate that is surrounding this issue of the gift of tongues, now let's study the consistent details when it comes to the gift of tongues. In other words, we're going to highlight six similarities, six consistent details between 1 Corinthians and the book of Acts that show us that that both passages are speaking about the same gift. So here are six consistent details that show both passages are describing the same gift. First, and... Have I mentioned that you can get these slides on the church website for cross-references? You're going to need it. Here we go. (laughs) First, the same word is used in both passages, 1 Corinthians 12-14 and Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 12-14, through the same Greek word glossa is used to describe what was being spoken, laleo. This happens four times. This combination of these two Greek words happens four times in the book of Acts and happens 13 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And throughout the New Testament, that word glossa 
is used not only to describe physical tongues, right? Like when Jesus would, would uh, heal someone's tongue to be able to speak. It was also used to describe languages. The second meaning is clearly what's in view in Acts and in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through In other words, 1 Corinthians, just like the book of Acts, is not describing the gift of having a physical tongue. That you can make little twirls and you've got a gifted tongue there. That's not what it's talking about, right? Obviously. It's describing the gift of languages, right? Of having the ability to speak in them. In fact, in our conversations, we would do well to define our terms and refer to this gift probably more often as the gift of languages because that is much closer to what the first century readers would have understood when they read this word in this context of glossa. They would have read it as the gift of languages. Now really, before I move on, I want you to ask yourself this question. What is a language? It is a meaningful way to communicate information directly to other people, right? That's a language. It is a meaningful way to communicate information directly to other people. Language, by definition, is not incoherent speech. It is a real meaningful way to directly communicate information to other people. So simply looking at the meaning of the word glosses, directing us already towards, I would contend, a certain interpretation. So the same word is used in both passages. Second, same description is used in both passages. In 1 Corinthians 12-14, Paul describes the gift of languages in the exact same way that his companion Luke describes the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2. In other words, in both passages, the gift of tongues is described in the exact same way that literal rational, understandable, foreign human languages would be described. Starting off very general, and this is very general, throughout these two chapters, Paul makes it very clear that the, that the gift of tongues that was being spoken can and should be interpreted. That shows up all over in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 12, verse 10, 30, 14, verse 5, 13. That is translated, right? That's what interpret means, to give understanding to something. And so just at a very general level, the fact that these 1 Corinthian languages could be interpreted showed that they at least functioned in the same way as the Acts 2 languages did, which were authentic foreign human languages that could likewise be translated and given understanding to. But Paul doesn't state a very general level. He gets very specific, and he describes the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. He defines the gift of tongues directly as the gift of foreign human languages. Not just once, he defines it as the gift of foreign human languages twice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, as Paul is arguing for the need to interpret this gift of tongues, he says, if you have your Bible open in verses 10 through 11, he says, there are doubtless many languages where? In the world. So we're talking about human languages here. Languages that are found in this world. And there's a lot of them, Paul says. There's a lot of foreign human languages. And get this, he says, none is what? Without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be what? A foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So here, Paul states that if someone is speaking in tongues to me, they're speaking just like a foreigner is speaking to me. Why? Because they are speaking in a foreign human language that I don't understand. 
And again, in verse 21 of chapter 14, when giving a description of the New Testament gift of tongues, what is interesting is that Paul goes back to the Old Testament to define the New Testament gift of tongues. He goes back to Isaiah 28, verses 11 through 12, and he states this, In the law it is written, by a people of strange tongues, and listen to this, by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying here that the gift of tongues is the gift of foreign human languages that was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah 700 years ago, in which Israel would recognize that they've rejected the Messiah because all of a sudden the mighty works of God are being proclaimed by foreigners, not by Jews. It was a gift given to believers. The gift of tongues was a gift given to believers that was designed, according to what Paul says here, to serve as a sign for the unbelieving Jews when God would speak to the Gentiles, would would speak through the Gentiles to the Jews, but in a foreign human language. Which is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. They are spoken to with the tongues of Gentile nations. So the same word is used, the same description. Next, the same source. The same source, and we'll go as quickly as possible through these last four. Similarities. Unlike the modern gift of tongues, which can and in some case has to be learned, has to be learned, both Acts and 1 Corinthians, both Acts and 1 Corinthians clearly teach that the biblical and miraculous gift of tongues was given to you directly by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what made the gift of tongues miraculous was not that it was taught. What made the gift of tongues miraculous is that it was not taught. That's how people knew it was from God. Think about it. What's more miraculous? What's more miraculous? Being taught how to speak something that no one else can understand? Or suddenly being able to share the gospel in French or Spanish or Portuguese without any training at all? One of those events can be obviously, easily attributed directly to God as miraculous. The other one, not so much. So when we compare 1 Corinthians with the book of Acts, we see the same word used, the same description, the same source, forth, the same purpose. The same purpose. In Acts chapter 2, the gift of languages operated as a sign to the unbelieving Jews. And in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 22, as I already mentioned, Paul explicitly says the gift of languages is a sign for unbelievers, specifically for unbelieving Jews, since he references Isaiah 28, 11. So we see the same word, the same description, the same source, the same purpose. Next, the same communicative enablement, right? Sorry about that. The same communicative enablement. In other words, what I'm saying is, it actually aided communication, the gift of tongues. It didn't hamper it. That's what you see in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, the gift of tongues was given to be able to communicate the message of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, directly to the ears of a foreigner, not to communicate the message of God indirectly with someone who already speaks your own language. In other words, the gift of tongues was a spiritual gift that enabled direct communication of the truth, not indirect communication of it. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6-13 through 13 especially, Paul makes it clear that the purpose of this gift was, was to be able to communicate words of understanding to the listeners. And if you can't communicate in a way that can be immediately understood, then Paul says throughout 1 Corinthians 14, stop. 
That's what Paul teaches. So in both cases, the gift of tongues was the spiritual ability to directly communicate the truth of God to those in other languages. To those in other languages. Not indirectly communicate to those in your own language. So we see the... uh, We see the same word, the same description, the same source, the same purpose, the same communicative enablement. And finally, we see the same reactions. The same reactions. In Acts chapter 2, the unbelievers heard the gift of foreign human languages, spoke without translation, and their conclusion there, if you remember, was, well, they're drunk, right? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23, the unbelievers come and they hear the languages spoken without interpretation, and they say, you're out of your minds. You're crazy. So we see the same word, the same description, the same source, the same purpose, the same communicative enablement, and the same reactions. I'd say we're talking about the same gift. That the book of 1 Corinthians is describing the exact same gift of tongues that the book of Acts describes to us. The sudden and supernatural ability to speak a foreign human language that the speakers themselves had never previously learned specifically to share the gospel. And by the way, this is exactly what the early church fathers believed as well. All writing within the first three generations of when these signs actually took place. The early church fathers like Gregory of Nazianzus, John Christostom, and Augustine of Hippo all unanimously agreed that the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians is the gift of foreign human languages just as is described in the book of Acts. In other words, those who were best positioned to understand what these sign gifts were, not only through the study of Scripture, but also through the testimony of eyewitnesses, they all stated that there was only one gift of tongues described in the Bible. If you want those quotes, I can give them to you afterwards. And when you study the Reformers, from John Calvin to the Puritans to Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, Charles Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield, and on and on, they all believed the same thing about the early church fathers as the early church fathers, that there is only one gift of tongues described in Scripture, and that is the sudden and supernatural ability to speak a foreign human language that the speakers themselves had never previously learned specifically to share the gospel. I'd like to make one final note. Luke wrote his clear description of the gift of tongues in the book of Acts five to six years after Paul wrote his letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around 55 AD. Then Luke comes along with Paul's constant traveling companion, by the way, and he writes Acts around 60 to 62 AD, five to six years after 1 Corinthians. I'd say the only reason why Luke, the constant companion of Paul, would implement the same words, same description, same source, same purpose, same communicative enablement, and same reactions in Acts 2 as his companion used five years earlier in 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14, is because Luke is trying to tell us something. Luke is trying to describe in Acts chapter 2 the exact same gift that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14. The sudden and supernatural ability to speak a foreign human language that the speakers themselves had never previously learned specifically to share the gospel. What's happening in 1 Corinthians, I would contend, is exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. To see anything else in Acts chapter 12 through 14, I would contend is to insert one's own experience into the text rather than letting the plain sense of Scripture rule. Now I know that saying that, as plainly as I just did, probably raises... Some objections in your minds, so I want to address them briefly before we conclude. 
having presented the case that the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12-14 through is the same gift of tongues as described in Acts 2, now let me address some common disputes. In other words, often made to the case that I just made. And I want to attempt to answer them briefly, one by one. There are five common disputes to the claim that I just made that I would like to attempt to answer for you this morning from Scripture. Let's begin. First, some people will turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, where it says that the Spirit gives to another various kinds of tongues. And people will say, that must mean that there are two types of tongues, human languages and heavenly languages. No, I would say no. The word kinds there is genos in the Greek, and it refers to a family, group, race, or nation. Just like how linguists today speak of language groups, Paul is saying that there are various families of languages in this world. And the gift of tongues enables some believers to speak in a variety of those languages. This is, by the way, exactly what's described in Acts chapter 2, where there is listed more than a dozen kind of human dialects spoken by believers to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And by the way, this use of genos in this way is used to describe human languages because it's exactly the same word that Paul uses two chapters later in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 10, when Paul says there that there are different kinds, same word, of languages in the world, clearly referring to human languages. This is not differentiating human languages from heavenly. This is differentiating different types of foreign human languages because he uses it that exact same way in 1 Corinthians 14. Next, some people will turn to 1 Corinthians 13.1, where it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and people will say, Well, that must mean there is the possibility to speak in the tongues of angels. But when you exegete the passage, what you realize is that is not what Paul is saying at all. What Paul is saying is he's using hyperbole. That is exaggerated, impossible statements to communicate the importance of love. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13. I think this becomes clear when you look at the context. Again, I'm trying to keep this short. Paul's statement, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, in verse 1, is paralleled in 1 Corinthians 13 with the exaggerated and impossible statement, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Anyone want to raise their hand and say you know that? Every spiritual mystery that, that is residing in the mind of God, you got that this morning? It's an exaggerated, superlative statement, right? And it also parallels, by the way, the end of verse 2, which is ext- uh, equally extreme and superlative, where he says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains from their places. And this carries through into verse 3, where Paul says, if I give away all I have, even to give up my body to be burned, In every instance, Paul is mentioning the normal experience, then he gives the extreme expression of that experience, and then he underlines the importance of love after it all. Understanding the context then helps us understand what Paul is saying. Ask yourself this question. Is it possible for any human being to have in this life all faith without any wavering or doubt at all regarding any of God's promises? Is it possible to be marked by all faith so as to literally be able to remove mountains? Answer, no. Or am I only of this? (laughs) Two, is it possible 
for any human being to come to understand all the divine mysteries and all the divine knowledge that God Himself possesses in heaven? Answer, no. Is it possible for any human being to speak in the tongues of not only men, but even of angels? Contrary to what people say, the context of this passage actually suggests the answer, no. And Paul's point is, even if it was possible, even, even if all these extreme things could be true, love would always, always, always be more important. And by the way, anytime angels, so you say, well, I want to speak in the tongues of angels. Okay, well, anytime angels ever spoke in the Bible, they always spoke in a real language that people could immediately understand. Sorry to disappoint you. I don't think 1 Corinthians 13.1 is suggesting the existence of a non-cognitive heavenly prayer language. I think Paul's using hyperbole. I think he's using extreme expressions to communicate the supremacy and importance of love. It doesn't disprove the interpretation of 1 Corinthians teaching the exact same gift as Acts 2. Next, people will turn to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, where Paul says, If one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And then they'll say, well, if tongues are always human languages, then how could Paul say that no one understands them? The answer is because the Corinthian church was misusing the gift of tongues. That is the context of these chapters, right? The no one mentioned there in verse 2 does not mean no one on planet Earth can understand these languages. What he's saying is no one in your congregation, Corinthians, is understanding these languages. You study the surrounding context, Paul is saying love should be driving your use of these gifts, Corinthians, which means, verses 5 through 13 of 1 Corinthians 14, you should always have an interpreter present because love is driving your use of that gift so that people there in the church can actually understand the foreign language and be built up by the message. Because, and this is where verse 2 comes in, if you're speaking in a foreign language that no one understands but yourself, verse 4 says you're building up yourself, not the church. And the only one who understands you in that moment, the only one in that congregation who understands your words is God, because he knows all human languages. No one else is getting it without an interpreter. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for mutual upbuilding. For it is better to speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others, Paul says in verse 19, than to speak 10,000 words in a tongue, and the implication is from the context, a tongue that no one understands. This is why Paul insists on interpreting the foreign language so that the rest of the body would be built up by the mysteries. And that doesn't mean, ooh, esoteric mysteries. It means, as Paul uses it throughout the rest of the epistles, the mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed. This is why Paul insists on interpreting the foreign language so that the rest of the body would be built up. This verse does not disprove the interpretation of 1 Corinthians teaching the exact same gift as Acts chapter 2. People turn to, this is my second to last one, 1 Corinthians 14, 18, where Paul says, well, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you. And people will look at that and they will assume, well, if Paul spoke more tongues than the Corinthians did who spoke tongues in church, then that must mean that Paul does so at home in his own private prayer closet. In other words, in their minds, there's only two options where tongues can be used, in the church and in private. But there's a problem with this. One, There is no biblical precedent for a private use of tongues anywhere in the New Testament. You'll never see someone using it in that way. And two, there is absolutely a biblical precedent for the public use of tongues outside the church in evangelistic context, which is preaching the gospel to the lost. After all, this is how the gift of tongues was used on the day of Pentecost. 
So you want to know why Paul spoke in tongues more than the Corinthians? It's not because he did so in his prayer closet. It's because Paul did so in the streets and the synagogues of almost every major city in the Roman Empire as he was speaking the good news of Jesus Christ to those he had never met before in their own languages. As he communicated the message of Jesus Christ, the Spirit gave him utterance to communicate that saving message more clearly and more directly than he ever could have done on his own. Which is why the Spirit gives his gifts. This verse does not disprove the interpretation of 1 Corinthians teaching the same type of gift of tongues as Acts chapter 2. In fact, it probably strengthens it. And finally, people will turn to 1 Corinthians 14.23 where Paul says that if an unbeliever or an outsider walks into a church and everyone's speaking in tongues, their conclusion will be that everyone's lost their mind. And people will say, well, if tongues are an actual human language, then why would they conclude everyone's mad? Well, the obvious answer is because the unbeliever doesn't speak the foreign languages that are being spoken by the church. Paul is speaking about people who don't understand the foreign language just like the Jews in Acts chapter 2, verses 12-13 through 13 in it. Those who didn't understand in Acts 2 thought they were drunk. But those who didn't understand heard the gospel in their own language. Imagine walking into a building and hearing a whole group of people speaking, not just in one foreign language, right, but 16 different foreign languages. And no one's interpreting it. Just a torrent of sounds and syllables. It's exactly what happened in Acts 2. It's exactly what happens in 1 Corinthians 14. Hence, Paul's commands to always interpret, to always speak words with your mind, and to always do all things decently and in order. This verse, like all the others, does not disprove the interpretation of 1 Corinthians teaching the same type of gift of foreign human languages in Acts 2. In fact, it matches perfectly. I think I'd summarize the biblical evidence like this if I can. The only definition of tongues that matches every description of it found in 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14, is the gift of foreign human languages. The definition of some type of heavenly angelic language might fit some of the descriptions you see in these chapters, but it doesn't fit all of them, specifically 1 Corinthians 14, 10 and 11, and 1 Corinthians 14, 21 through 22. The only definition that can match every description of the gift of tongues found in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is the definition that is consistent with Acts chapter 2, which is the historic position of the early church fathers. And that definition is this that the gift of tongues was the sudden and supernatural ability to speak a foreign human language that the speakers themselves had never previously learned. In order to communicate the message of Jesus Christ more clearly and more directly than they ever could have done on their own and to serve as a sign to the unbelieving Jews that yes, the new revelation of Jesus Christ is in fact from God and right now you're out of His saving purposes and plans. You must come to Christ. That was the purpose of the sign gifts. Whether you look at Acts chapter 2 or 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you see the same words, same description, same source, same purpose, same communicative enablement, and the same reactions. In short, you see the same gift the sudden and supernatural ability to speak a foreign human language that the speakers themselves had never previously learned. Anything short of this should not be called the gift of tongues. Because this is how the Bible defines the gift of of tongues. Why is this important for us to understand? It's important to understand 
because it keeps us focused on Christ above all as the book of Colossians instructed us by knowing from the pages of Scripture alone how the Holy Spirit is truly at work in this world today, we can know what our focus and what our ambition ought to be as believers. And our ambition ought not to be to chase after some mystical experience that will make me feel the presence of God in some subjective way, but rather it is to exalt Jesus Christ above all in both my actions and my words and to proclaim Him as clearly and as directly as possible to a lost and dying world in a a pure and undiluted way. When I remember my calling as a Christian, according to the pages of Scripture, I understand that I have not been given the gift of glossa so that I or other believers can feel God's presence. I have been given the gift of the gospel so that the world that is lost and dying and headed to hell can come to know God's salvation. That's my gift that I ought to be faithfully stewarding for the glory of Christ. The saving gospel that we preach no longer has to be confirmed. It just needs to be proclaimed. And God has already given us everything we need to do exactly that by His Spirit in Christ alone. And so it is to His words which I now commit your further study and your faithful obedience until He returns. To that end, as the men come forward for communion this morning, Let's pray. Father, as we consider this morning the majesty and glory of Christ, we pray that you would give us, that you would equip us for this glorious ministry and service. As we consider the great task of proclaiming Christ to those that are around us that need to hear that message in a pure and undiluted way. Help us, Father, to be able to proclaim that message clearly and directly. Help us to be faithful to the true ministry of the Spirit. Help us to study His Word that He inspired. Help us to preach it by His power so that those who are under our care and who are in our lives, whom we have influence with, might be changed, not by anything they see in us, but by the power of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Do the work that only You can do, Father, towards this end, in us and through us, for the honor and glory of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.